I had one of the best times I've ever had <laughs> in making a movie doing this, this little teeny tiny film that, you know, is, one could say it's, a, you know, a niche film. And yet, I think everyone can relate to the notion of, of, of you know, dreams lost or shattered and, and uh, you know, it, you think it's going to turn out one way and it doesn't. And, and how, do you, how do you come to terms with that? That was the one and only Nathan Lane talking about his experiences making Lee Wilkoff's lovely film, No Pay Nudity. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. Today we're talking with longtime actor and first-time director Lee Wilkoff about his film No Pay Nudity. It's the story of Lester Rose, a mid-career actor in crisis about show business in particular and life in general. It stars Gabriel Byrne, Francis Conroy, Boyd Gaines, Donna Murphy, and Nathan Lane. So what news? So, okay, I talked to Carol and as always, they love you. Yeah, yeah, they love me. They're not going to hire me. No, no, actually, they're considering you for The Fool. The Fool? He's famous. He's an actor. Oh, neat. Lester! Why are you eating in here? Lester, outside. Dog dies this morning. I can't even have a breakfast. The man lost his best friend today. Let him eat his egg sandwich. I wanna see the Stop counting other people's blessings, or you will never find any peace in this godforsaken world. The ocean. I wanna know what it feels like come back Who are you? I'm yourself. Perseverance, survival, and beauty. That is a career, my dear daughter. When I saw the name Lee Wilkoff listed as director during the film's credits, I thought, where do I know that name from? I racked my brain, and then it came to me, suddenly. Suddenly, Seymour is standing beside you. You don't need no makeup, don't have to pretend. originated the role of Seymour Krelborn in the off-Broadway production of a little musical called Little Shop of Horrors, and went on to originate the role of Samuel Bick in Stephen Sondheim's Assassins. He talked about those two memorable roles at the end of our conversation. But first, we talked about No Pay Nudity, which was his first time as a film director. Tell me what, what it was that made you decide, hey, at this point, after stage and TV and movies, uh, I want to direct? Uh, it was something that was gnawing at me for the last 10 years, just something that I had always wished I had done. Uh, I, I, I never said, I wish I wasn't an actor and I wish I had been a director, but it was something that I just felt that I thought I could do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say oh, maybe nine years ago, I was in a kind of a fallow period, and I had been uh, friendly with this young man, Ethan Sandler. We had met uh, at uh, this theater festival, the Williamstown Theater Festival. 
Uh, we'd done a play together. He was a, a, a young, young, in his 20s maybe, uh, maybe early 30s. And I decided, uh, I, th I said, I think we should, I have this idea for a story. Let's write it together and uh, let's direct it together and then we'll write it for me. As it shook down, I'm, you know, I'm not, it wasn't for me. I decided it was not uh, something that I, uh, I didn't want to direct it and be in it. Okay. And, uh, and I realized the character was not, I was not really, really the right character for it. And then as it turned out, we, uh, we didn't end up uh, co-directing it. And he got the uh, screen credit, and uh, that's how it kind of played out. But it took it took. I mean, we wrote it, I think, together eight years ago, and then it sat in my on my computer for at least five years, and then I dusted it off when I was doing a play in Chicago, and I was free during the days, and I I looked at it and I said, "This is good." And I happened to be working with Nathan Lane, and. Uh, we were doing a play at the Goodman, the Iceman Cometh, and I sent. I said, "Will you read this, this uh, screenplay that I wrote?" And uh, I was hoping he'd get back to me eventually. And he got back to me the next day, and he said, "This is really good." Uh, and I said, "If I would you play Herschel, if I got this made?" And he said, "Yes." And that's really when the ball started to roll. Why did you decide you weren't right to play the part? Because it kind of feels like you would be i mean it was just you didn't want to direct an act i didn't want to direct an act but I, to say that i wasn't right for it i, I think uh i mean uh, as it turned out i wanted more of a leading man mm -hmm. uh but I, it would have worked i think with a character actor but i didn't want uh, me directing my first film i just couldn't do double duty i, I admire those people that can but i just i i, I just couldn't I couldn't multitask to that level. And and maybe this had a little to do with it, although I think I'd already made the decision by the time the uh, the investors came on and they wanted a name mm -hmm. for the league. Okay. And I was certainly not a sufficient, uh, I was not, uh, I was not a name, I'm not a name. So we uh, started uh, making some uh, inquiries about some names. So what was your process for that? I mean, you already had one name who had said I had Nathan, and that was they they wanted for the lead. They wanted a name, but we made some offers to some prominent names, and uh, one was one was very interested, but his wife was ill. Several didn't get back to me. One other prominent name just was on the fence and decided no. And then I got a uh, casting director involved and gave me a list of a number of names. And Gabriel was on it, Gabriel Byrne, and uh, sent it to him. And uh, he responded immediately, and he wanted he wanted to do it. He understood it. He got it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, couldn't be more fortunate that it worked out that way. If you would have said to me when I started the process and we were going to make this film that Gabriel Byrne would be playing Lester Rosenthal, <laughs> I, it was not something I would have not believed it possible I would have said to you I don't, I'm not really positive that he's right for it and you know these kind of accidents happen mm -hmm. and uh, it was so fortuitous that we got Gabriel I think he's just fantastic in the role did you find that once you had um, everyone in place did you tweak the script at all to, 
to fit. Yes, to some extent. Although the Gabriel, the, the fact that Gabriel, you know, it's it's like so, he's somewhere be, in between. There's a line that when you first, uh, when he runs into the girl from high school, he, she said, "When you first got here, your accent was so." Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating that's just the only reference to the fact that he has a not necessarily an american accent right it's not quite fish or fowl and I, we didn't find that it was a problem when, when he first called me uh, our first phone conversation was i was at the jazz fest in new orleans with music blaring and he was in norway uh shooting i think it's called the vikings and he, he, we spoke. I could barely hear him, but he said, "I think I'm going to keep my accent." And I, I didn't quite know what to say. I didn't know him, and I didn't want to say, "No, I don't want you to." But by the time we started shooting, it was kind of uh, vague, and it never seemed to be an issue. So we didn't necessarily tweak for um, the particular person. No, okay. there, there was. Uh, the act, some of the actors wrote some things for themselves. Nathan uh, contributed uh, a fair amount of his dialogue, which I encouraged. And then there was an incident where somebody uh, brought in dialogue for themselves, and I did not care for it, and it created the only real conflict during shooting, and I insisted, with the help of my producer, uh, insisted that the, the the actor speak the words written, and it uh, I think it enhanced the uh, performance because the actor was so upset, and the actor didn't speak to me for a couple of days. But um, there was tweaking all all along. Mm-hmm. It, it and Nathan knew this. I didn't. The, the role Nathan plays was originally written for actually another actor an actor friend of mine who had passed away in between the time it was written and uh, we shot. It was written with, I wrote it with Maury Chaikin. Do you know who Maury Chaikin yes, was? Yes, indeed, indeed. Maury, I, she, he and I did our first play in New York together like 44 years ago. And I, I, he was just physically and such a such a wonderful actor that it, Herschel was, I just wrote it, we wrote it for him. But he, as I said, he, he passed away and Nathan stepped into it brilliantly, I think. I would agree. Uh, so, with all your time on the other side of the camera, what, what was it like the, to step behind it, and, and how easy a transition was that for you? I mean, you probably already well, knew how to talk to actors, or at least how not to talk to actors. I had spent many years uh, in Hollywood on TV and film sets, and I didn't I'd probably paid way more attention if I knew someday I was going to be directing, but I always was paying attention. I wasn't like going up to the DP and saying, you know, what size lens are you using? But I was, I was like, I watched, I watched and I listened. And I also had the, I had the great pleasure and the great fortune of working with uh, Sidney Lumet twice and, uh, uh, I didn't do a movie with him, but I'd work with Bob Fosse. I mean, I, I, I've been around some, some very amazing uh, people, and I observed them as closely as I could without being in their way. So being on the set itself physically was not, was not intimidating at all. 
speaking to the actors um no one was with the exception of that one little uh, set to with the, the actor that uh, re rewrote their lines the actors uh were very i didn't have to give many notes but when i gave notes i was surprised that not only were they well received but they were well understood because uh, i've been directed I'm an I'm an actor that needs as strong a good hand as possible by a director. So um, I've had many directors have to talk to me to get me to do what they need to do. And there was like just like maybe two or three times Gabriel had so much to do. There were times where I had to like maybe guide him in another just a little nudge. And he liked to talk things out. Um, he probably would have wanted to talk things out longer but we just didn't have the time. That's just how he works. One of my actors would call me up at night and just need to be stroked. And he's a, a good friend of mine, and I was able to do that. I had worked with him in a play and knew that that was something that he needed, and and I was sincerely telling him how wonderful he was, because he was, and that was useful. The first scene in the movie with the veterinarian's assistant I cast this young woman. Um, I love this actress. Her name's Janine Sorales. I don't think she'd be embarrassed by this story. She was a student of my wife's. My wife used to teach at Yale uh, Drama School, and she was somebody that I was aware of, or my wife cast her in a lot of plays. She came in with an interpretation that was completely, and it was completely valid, but it was not what I wanted her to do. And I think I like said maybe two sentences to her, and she's such a great actress. She made the adjustment, and I surprised myself by being able to communicate that to her. But luckily, I had an actress that could take it, you know, take it in and make that quick adjustment. So I cast the film with such fine actors that I didn't have to tell them too much. But when I did, they they got it. Right. Did you have rehearsal time away from the set, or was it just uh, like like a TV uh, show where read you show up and block and rehearse? We did read through the movie for about four hours, I think a couple days before we started shooting, and we talked it through, and uh, we would rehearse on the set, but my, my DP, my wonderful young DP named uh, Brian Lannon, he was... Uh, he was 26 years old. I, I met him. I had done a couple episodes of a show called High Maintenance, and he uh, he was the DP, and I, I loved what I saw, and I hired him. And he, he, he and his crew were a little, I have to say this, and I think he knows this, they were a little slow. They were, And they were slow because they were, you know, immaculate with, with, with their setting up. But we had a little more time sometimes than I'd wanted, so we were able to rehearse. And the actors, all the actors, the first nine days of the shoot were the, was in the, the 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 lounge set that we built, the Actors Equity Lounge, and the actors would uh, be in a holding area and they would work on the stuff while I was on the set, you know, getting things set up. Was that the only set you built? Uh, we built, I think. We build another set. Um, you are required, my I believe you are required to build 
a set on a on certain sound stages that are designated by the state in order to get your tax credit. Mm-hmm. So we were required to build a set. Uh, it was one of the th- plays that was getting done. We could have found a theater to do it at, but it was the one that was most easy to build. So we built that. Uh, we we had some raw space down in Wall Street, and that's what we built the Actors Equity uh, Lounge. And then we built one other set for the uh, the two hander play that Lester attends. Okay. With, uh, the uh, the lounge set is terrific. It looks. I thought. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's you're actually on location. It, yeah. The well, the, we wanted to use the the real Actors Equity Lounge, but it was in a state of transition. It it was finally being renovated and it just time-wise we couldn't use it but uh luckily i had a, a friend of mine as one of the uh, well i think i know most of the officers there my friend is a vice president and we got they were really helpful but i had a i had a young uh a production designer maki takanuchi and she put that together in three days we, it was it was the final it was the last uh location that we found it was the most crucial location. It was driving us insane that we couldn't find the space we liked, but we finally settled on this, and they threw it together, and I don't mean throw it together. They put it together in three days in her, in her crew, and it really was effective. How many days did you have to shoot overall? Uh, you said you spent nine days in the lounge. Uh, I believe it was either 24 or 25 days. And I wanted to re. I had a scene that I wanted to end the film with, that I wanted to add, and we would have had a day of a day of shooting, but we just didn't have it in the budget. But um, I don't. There's nothing that I miss. No, I don't miss like that. We didn't get something. Okay. I don't think. Was it always planned that um, the character of Herschel would would narrate the story? No. At what point did you decide to, to include that? When certain people thought it would be a good idea. Okay. <laughs> I'll move on. Some people weren't as com- some people weren't as comfortable with silence as I was. Right. So some compromises were made. To be perfectly blunt. Yeah. I'm I'm assuming you wisely got it that it was added on. I, I believe the film I, works with it, and I believe the film would have worked without it. And and that's exactly what I'm feeling too. It. It certainly didn't yeah. hurt. It kind of it filled in some gaps, but um, it 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 didn't feel to me like it like when you sat down to write it. The very first thing you thought was, "Okay, I'm going to have this character narrated." No, but uh, but it was. Uh, I've got, I've had people that watch the film like it, and people that go, "Yeah, you didn't need it." <laughs> and I go, "Okay, I'm glad. You know, I feel fine about it either way." It is. It's what we have. Yeah. Do you want to talk talk about the Kickstarter campaign? And, and it was not successful. I, I'm assuming you know that. Um, it was very highly, highly ambitious. I think it was. Uh, if memory serves me, it was like four hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is a ton of money for a Kickstarter campaign. And we did nicely, but we didn't succeed. I think we got close to two hundred thousand dollars, which is very. Uh, uh, I was I was I was touched by all the generosity, but it didn't work out. But because of the Kickstarter campaign, certain people became aware of the film 
and then were able to communicate their knowledge of the film to some other people that came aboard and invested in the film. So the Kickstarter campaign had value. Also, I did circle back to some people on the Kickstarter that had that had committed money to the Kickstarter campaign and said to them, would you still be willing to, um, to help me out? Um, I'm not going to give the same kind of perks, but if you can give me, if you can help, uh, a couple people got um, associate producer credits. Everybody got their name in the credits. Everybody got a video, uh, no matter what the level. So that was helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not the amount of money that I, I didn't go to back to everybody. I just was like, at that point, I had had my hand out for so long, I couldn't go like with my hand out to every single person. That was more stressful than making the movie. Well, I was going to ask, what what advice would you give to someone who is considering Kickstarter now that you've tried Mm. did that and then ended up going with more traditional investors? Uh, I would say don't ask for so much money, but don't go nuts with the uh, with the perks. People uh, are really, I don't believe, giving you uh, being generous for little rewards. Or I don't mean to belittle the rewards, but they're doing it out of the kindness of their, you know, belief in you. Um, some guys I know did a Kickstarter campaign to do a documentary film about the uh, Hall of, uh, no, something to do about my hometown, and they did, I think, a forty-day campaign. And I said, don't do it; it's too long, and you'll have like a nervous breakdown. And they did it, and they raised the money. So what the hell do I know? <laughs> I noticed that you had Ann Roth credited for special costume consultant. What, what uh, way did she help you guys out? Uh, Ann Roth is uh, is uh, to me she's you know the 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 premier costume designer of the second part of the 20th century. Yep. Edith Head and then Ann Roth. Yep. Into the 21st century, and Ann and I uh, I had worked with Ann on a couple plays. I did The Odd Couple with Nathan Lane on Broadway, and Anne designed that. But we had a very nice, warm uh, relationship, and I told her, someday I'm going to uh, direct a film, and I want you to be the costume designer. And said that she would, if she could. Mm-hmm. And um, then, as it turned out, she agreed to, and then... She got busy, and uh, another a lovely woman that works in her with her became the costume designer, uh, Michelle Matlin, who did a great job. But Anne, specifically, uh, worked uh, with because she's done so many shows with Nathan. They worked together on his look mm-hmm. and Gabriel's look, and I said to her. Uh, I I hope you know. I hope this is not a diss to Michelle, and I don't believe it was. But I would like I would like you and to give you some sort of credit. You're Ann Roth. I mean, mm-hmm. it's and she said whatever you want to give me. So we gave her that title. As you were editing the movie, I know you you were very in from the beginning on the writing, and then obviously there are the directing. What was your process for finding the movie and the editing? How 
how precious were things to you? How willing were you to move things around or change? That is a very we're opening a we're opening a, a, a very interesting can of worms. Editing was the most difficult uh, part of the process for me. I'd never been in an editing room. Uh, my editor and I, uh, I think sometimes we didn't see eye to eye. Um, and I didn't really sometimes know how to communicate what I wanted. The producers got involved in the editing room. I mean, the you know, the money people. Mm -hmm we're not thrilled with the editing and uh, we uh, brought on another a supervising editor and it got a little more complicated and uh, I was doing a play at the time and um, the editor was the supervising editor was doing some editing out in California while I was in New York and there were some um, some ideas that some that were had that I uh, did not agree with, and there are some things in the film. Boy, I'm I'm opening just a can of worms. <laughs> no, there's it, some. Open it as far as you need to open it. We can. There, peek you it. know, there are some things in the film that uh, it was it was suggested that we edit different way, and I was adamant not to. And I and and those things are in the film, and there's a few things that were not my idea and that I learned to live with. Mm -hmm. and ultimately, we ended up with, uh, I think, a pretty a damn well-edited film. It was a somewhat of a difficult journey, the, the post-production. I think where we got in, I think I um, probably got us into a little bit of a little bit of jams because uh, I didn't do the sometimes the coverage I should have done yeah if I had the opportunity if I get the opportunity to do it again I will I've learned I learned a ton from that that that's where I learned the most what I needed for the editing room so um, there's two questions I always ask at the end do with these what you will um, the first question is uh, two-part. What's the smartest thing you did during production, and what, what was the dumbest thing you think you did? Uh, the smartest thing I did was uh, getting Nathan and Gabriel on board, uh, deciding when Maury wasn't available to get Nathan, and not saying, I don't think Gabriel burned. And uh, the stupidest thing, I, I'm not going to say. <laughs> I won't say. But you learned from it. Because I learned from it. Yeah. I learned from it. And I, I, I that's all I can say. So are you going to do this again? Uh, I, I really getting itchy to do it. Uh, there's another script that I wrote with the same young man. It's called Teenage Wasteband. <laughs> and uh, it's about uh, growing up in Canton, Ohio, my scene junior or sophomore year of high school was it her junior um in the six late 60s in canton ohio it, it, it's period and it would cost a fair amount of money i'd love to do it but i wouldn't want to do it under the certain same circumstances i don't want to do it i don't want to put my hat in my hand and have to go ask a, a, a zillion people for um, you know 
$1,000 here and there. So I don't know, but I, I hope to do it again. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. Before I could let him go, Lee was kind enough to spend a few minutes talking about two early stage successes, Sondheim's Assassins and the original off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors. So I had a couple questions for you about just that whole experience, because having talked to Roger Corman about the, the movie, the original movie. and Yeah, he came to, I did it in Los Angeles and met him. That was thrilling. The, Actually, the, opening night in Los Angeles, Roger came, Jackie uh, Joseph came, who played Audrey, yep. and I forget the guy's name. So that do I. He came. Yes. He, I forget his name. Anyhow, Anyhow what do you want to know? Well, um, Corman was so... I, I, I tell this story all the time to filmmakers because um, he was he's a great interview. He's an engineer, and he speaks like an engineer in perfect sentences. And I had 20 minutes, and I had to talk about, I think, five movies with him because I was doing five different... And I asked him, I said, so you shot Little Shop in three days? And he said, well, technically, yes, but there were some pickups. I had the actors for five days, and we rehearsed for three and shot for two. Wow. And that's I, what I tell that, people all the time is, you think you, you think rehearsal's not important? The cheapest man in the world <laughs> spent three days rehearsing. Uh, and then he said, I shot it with two cameras. He said, it really was more of a stunt. I would never do that sort of thing again. But how did you get involved in that project? You know, I could go on for hours. Anyhow, <laughs> I grew up in Cleveland. I grew up in Canton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. This is a little background, because you just talked about the film. Grew up in Canton, Ohio on Friday nights in the late 50s, early 60s, there was a guy that did the horror movies. Um, his name was Goulardi. Uh, his name is Ernie Anderson. His son is Paul uh, Thomas Anderson. Oh. If you see Paul Thomas Anderson's films, they're called Goulardi films. Ah. And he showed horror movies. One of our favorites, we would have like sleepovers with, you know, 12-year-old boys and we'd stay up late and watch and one of our favorites was always Little Shop of Horrors the original Little Shop of Horrors so I grew up knowing it loving it being just thinking it was amazing didn't know when I was a kid that it was shot in three days but it was primitive you know it was great it's crazy it's it's one of those movies that's so bad that it's great it's brilliant it's not bad movie. It's just production values when you look at it. Now, of course, two days. You know, the scene with Jack Nicholson, the set fell over and they stopped shooting the scene. <laughs> so anyhow, okay, I was familiar with it. I, I, I did a play in New York, the play with uh, Maury Chaikin. I met uh, our stage manager, had a girlfriend who was a casting director. Uh, a few And I, I knew them personally. Uh, I moved to California. Uh, a few years after doing that first play in New York, and I was pursuing my uh, my Hollywood uh, that pursuit, um, working sporadically and playing nerds on TV, um, and uh, I got a call from this woman, uh, the woman that was the boyfriend of the girlfriend of the cat of my stage manager. We're doing a musical uh, written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. And I knew Alan Menken from uh, a review I did in, in New York before I moved to California. 
and uh, it's called Little Shop of Horrors. I said, I know this. I know Little Shop of Horrors. I grew up watching it. Somebody's turned it into a musical. That's amazing. So I was very excited. I flew myself into New York, and I was auditioning for the role of the dentist for some reason or another. And I had, in those days, when I was in California, I was, I was, I was wearing, I was trying to get jobs with it, wearing a toupee. I was bald when I was seventeen, and I walked into the I walked into the audition, and Alan Menken knew me from this review that I did as bald, and he started laughing, and I got so embarrassed, I tore, tore off my toupee. And Howard Ashman said, "You are not a dentist. You're Seymour. You're a you know you're a potential Seymour." So I auditioned for the role, uh, and. It. Uh, I got a call back the next day, and it was between me. This is a story I heard years later, but the story was it came down to me and another actor, uh, Nathan Lane. <laughs> it was between me and Nathan, and Howard Ashman had an assistant, uh, a young woman who uh, uh, suggested to him that I was probably a better fit. For one reason or another, and uh, uh, she is my wife. I married her. I met her on the show. I married her. Her name's Connie Gatto. She subsequently directed it all over the world, and so um, I played Seymour. I we opened it in New York. It was this tiny little show. I would take the flyers for it to people, and they would like, you know, look at me like, "What the hell is this?" And then. A month later, they were begging me for tickets mm -hmm. because it was such a huge hit. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just was like the big, it was the hottest ticket in New York, and it was in a little 99-seat theater, and then it moved off-Broadway where it ran for five years, but I didn't do it for five years. I did it for like six months, and then six months in Los Angeles where it didn't do so well. Mm -hmm. And then I filled in over the years for different Seymours that would go on vacations. Um, so that was that. My wife directed it all over the world. And then there was a production in Florida that was Broadway-bound about 12 or 15 years ago. And I played Mr. Mushnick in that. Uh, so I have played Mr. Mushnick. But I did not come... I did, I did, it came to Broadway, but I did not come in with it for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, but I would like to play Mr. Mushnick. Uh, uh, well, I'm certainly old enough. Yes, no, um, that's finally time. Seymour was 30, uh, I was 30. It was 35 years ago. It was just about now, literally, April. We were in rehearsal 35 years ago. We opened the end of April or the beginning of May in 1982. Wow. And it was, you know, very, it was very uh, profound for my career because it was a huge hit and it, got me you know people came to see it mm -hmm. and I met my wife on it so it was it was very significant a good show all around you know people say to me what's your favorite thing you've ever done and uh, and uh, they all think I'm going to say Little Shop of Horrors and it's Assassins Assassins is is the greatest experience I ever had. It was not a huge smash hit, mm -hmm. but I was I I you know I was in a Sondheim musical, which is a gift that I got, and uh, the cast 
I loved the cast, and for me, a lot of doing it, any show is who I'm doing it with. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know the material is 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 really important, but I it was just a great cast, and um, the part was really challenging, and uh, I think that was a show like the director didn't know what the hell to help me have me do and I was kind of on my own and I kind of thank God found my way and uh, I don't have a lot of stories except we did the album we got nowadays you that you do a cast album you do it in like a you do it you get one take mm-hmm. assassin we had three days and the first number up was the number that I had the most singing my character really did monologues and didn't sing I played this guy Sam Bick who tried to kill Richard Nixon in it by crashing an airplane into the uh, White House, but shot in the cockpit. But anyhow, he did these like rants. He did these taped rants. But I had this song that I had to sing, and it was the first number up, and I was nervous, and I was tight, and Steve Sondheim had a broken ankle, so he couldn't come in like to the studio. He was in the, in the, uh, the control room. And I was I was just struggling with it, and I came in during a break to hear it. And Steve Sondheim said to me, "Yeah, it's tough for you guys that can't sing." And I, you know, I almost I I, I wanted to disappear and but we finally got it. They told me who did they, they told me to try to sound like Jack Nicholson, and I think it's who I try to sound like. And then years later, I did another thing with Steve Sondheim, a, a uh, this this workshop of a thing called the Frogs, and I did have a number, and I sang, and he he forgot that he told me I couldn't sing, and he was very uh, complimentary. So, I, I, I just, just being in the presence of him was just like the most intimidating, the most. It was it was thrilling, but he's uh, very intense. It was just a great. It was my great greatest joy and the thing that I cherish the most. Thanks to Lee Wilkoff, heard here performing my favorite song from Little Shop, Mushnik and Son, for taking the time to talk to me about his movie, No Pay Nudity, which is available now for home viewing. I recommend that you track it down. If you like this interview, you can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google, and Apple Books. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Well, that's it for episode 103 of the Occasional Film Podcast, produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally. <laughs>